back everyone to another episode of the music and photography podcast i'm billy sanford and today i'm excited to be speaking with stephen dowling stephen welcome how are you doing i'm not too bad thank you uh happy fourth of july <laughs> you you traitor you <laughs> <laughs> hey I, i'm uh, i'm from new zealand originally so this is all uh, you know work it out amongst yourselves <laughs> fair enough fair enough no i i really do appreciate you making some time for me and i'm glad you mentioned new zealand because that was actually where i wanted to start i expect that most people listening will be familiar with cosmo photo and i have many questions about that as well but it seemed like maybe in a discussion about music and photography that new zealand might be the appropriate place to start with your story yeah absolutely the start of this story for you is in uh, music journalism is that correct uh, well i yeah i learned to be a journalist at technical school when i was 17 um, which is a, a long way away <laughs> from uh, from here i just turned 50. um yeah. i was uh i did journalism at technical school um in 1990 and sort of fairly soon after that i, I managed to time it incredibly well there was a huge downturn in new zealand economic economic recession and um a lot of the papers made a load of journalists redundant and weren't hiring anyone. So I started freelancing when I was about 17, 18, which seems insane now. But, right. uh, one of the sections on the newspaper that I did a lot of freelancing for that always needed stories was the art section. Okay. Uh, and including like, the music coverage. So I found myself being asked to interview like musicians either over the phone or who were in town and at that time i wasn't really in any way like a big music fan i sort of look at how um you know all these people have this incredibly um sophisticated knowledge of music when they're 13 or 14. that right. wasn't um, but gradually as i was doing more of the stuff the bug bit and Within about three or four years, I was intent on moving to London and trying to work for one of the the Yankees, the the weekly music mags. Right. So, yeah, I I didn't have the sort of 
baptism that lots of teenagers have where they're uh, listening to as many records as they can. But I suppose mine was a bit on fast forward. I right. Sort of, <laughs> 10 years, 10, 15 years of music discovery into about four. Well, it may have, you know, that that might have helped you come at your subjects with a more sort of untarnished view, maybe? You're coming at it pure? Maybe, yeah. Like naive, perhaps, or, or, or innocent. Right. Um, Not starstruck, I, anyway. <laughs> I, I do know the first... Um, first musician I interviewed when I was still uh, a high school student was Mel Torme um, <laughs> because he was t taking part in a uh, in an arts festival and um, yeah that's not not the first interview most um, rock rock music journalists get <laughs> that's right <laughs> that's right so going to London in your early 20s from New Zealand. I mean, that seems like both a very exciting move, but also a little bit scary. What was that experience like? Um, it, yeah, it was, it was both of those things. I mean, growing up in New Zealand, you are essentially living, still living in a, what feels in, in many ways like an English colony. We had a lot of English television. So, you know, soaps like Coronation Street and things like Doctor Who and Only Fools and Horses and, you know, all the kids shows, like, as well as American cartoons, things like, you know, uh, Hong Kong Fooey or Scooby-Doo. We had like all these really odd British kids shows, which, you know, will probably mean very little to American listeners, but, you know, just these bonkers, really odd British kids shows. And, and so, like British culture was quite familiar, but in some ways not. Like physically, everything was different. It was cold. The houses were built of brick, whereas you know in New Zealand, the houses are built of timber most of the time. Right. Um, you know, the, there's not the sounds of the bird life that you know, especially if you grew up on a farm like I did. You're sort of surrounded by you know, New Zealand birds and, and wildlife and suddenly you're in a big grey stone city which is full of people and I wouldn't say there's not much green space but, you know, what green space there is usually has several thousand other people trying to enjoy right. it at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, it, it was both familiar but also... Um, yeah, a, a bit of a shock to the senses. Right. So in my mind, of course, New Zealand is a little bit more remote. I could see like world famous artists making it there. And of course, lo local groups, but maybe not as many of the middle of the road acts. Yeah, well, it, I, I remember reading, um, and I, I wish I could remember who w was, you know, saying this, but you know, basically, if you're a musician in New Zealand, you're not going to become a millionaire unless you move somewhere else. So right. you might as well just do what it is you want to do. Mm -hmm. Because, like, even if you try and absolutely sell your soul, it's like you're in New Zealand. There's, you know, there's only so many records that can be sold. Right. So that means there is a, you know, certainly in, in the sort of independent rock scene from when I was growing up, 
and especially just before like in the 1980s it was very idiosyncratic and like a bunch of people reinterpreting their their record collections and so far removed from anything else that was going on so i i've got to know over the years a lot of the guys from the flying nun scene from bands like queen and the verlaines and the chills those kind of bands and and they talk about like you know hearing about a band you know let's say joy division and maybe hearing hearing a song on john peel over you know long wave on the world service right and then it would take six months for a copy of the enemy to come over to to new zealand so essentially you were in this sort of cultural moon base that was uh, on the other side of the world and, and completely cut off um you know apart from the occasional band that would you know fly in which you know some bands did like the cure played quite early on in their career and elvis costello and the clash and those kind of people but um it was still you know a relative rarity it was not like a band from manchester going over to leeds or liverpool or you know up to glasgow it was it's the other side of the planet and right you know even even with travel and you know the connection that we have today it still takes 28 hours to get there oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> so then you get to london and this is i guess the mid 90s yeah 94 uh 94 i came over here and i i did my jews pulling pints in a pub mm -hmm. um the red lion and kingley street if anyone wants to uh Put up a blue plaque <laughs> or a black and white plaque. That's right. London is, you know, at any time would be an exciting place to be if you are into music or if, you know, if you're trying to build a career covering music, that would be a great place to be. And also just the mid 90s, just because of the age I'm, I'm, I'm 54. So that was right in my sweet spot of. Yeah uh the music that you know that i consider mine that i resonated with i guess in my in my 20s as well so what what was kind of that your recollections of being in a you know in your 20s in london with the music scene at that time oh it was it was fantastic so from from getting to london i had a, a couple of years where i was just hustling and I got a foot in the door first of all through a, the help of a, a wonderful chap called Dominic Rosgrove who unfortunately died last year and he was a, a former Sheffield star music uh, writer who, who moved to New Zealand for a bit and was the the rock critic on the Herald I think New Zealand Herald in Auckland who, who helped me get some freelance work at Music Week which was sort of like the I suppose the UK's equivalent to Billboard. Okay. Um, but I wanted where, where I really wanted to be was the enemy, and I'd been told that there was this mysterious figure who uh, worked there, who was a Kiwi, who'd been in a load of bands in the eighties, bands I I remembered seeing as a kid, and I I rang him up and, and badgered him for a meeting, you know, to go for a beer or something. And uh, at the time, the enemy was in this building called Kingsreach Tower, which was about 
26 or 27 stories high, which is quite rare for for London because the soil's not as uh, compact as New York's. So it's um, right. it's not as uh, easy to build, you know, huge skyscrapers. Right. Things Reach Tower was this sort of imposing building uh, on the south bank of, of London. And I remember getting up there, taking a lift up to the 25th floor and uh, waiting in the reception at NME with all the, you know, the covers and everything, all, you know, the covers that I'd read. Right. Of the, of the issues I'd read and then ones obviously from the 70s and 80s and, and it just being like, oh, God, I'm in the NME office. And this guy, Brendan, uh, came, Brendan Fitzgerald, and as naive as I was, I knew that I had to make enough of an impression on the lift journey down to the ground floor before we went and, and got a pint, or else it was it was going to be 20 minutes, 30 minutes, and see you later. Right. Uh, and it turned out he and I went to the same school. Oh, wow. <laughs> which is a very different, you know, you, I'm sure you and your listeners are aware of the sort of old school ties of, um, uh, of England and the, you know, the private schools and everything, but this was very much, you know, two Kiwis who neither of us had gone to university, you know, right. realizing we had the same economics teacher. Um, oh, wow. And so he, he got me in to do some news shifts. So I, I did some, some news shifts on NME, which was, interesting and then about six months later and i was i was finding it quite difficult i, I was doing anything pretty much i was working at a, a tv news agency and you know all sorts of stuff just to keep the wolf from the door and it right. turned out that he'd been asked to set up enemy.com which was enemy's website which launched in the summer of 1996 Okay. And he wanted some help. He wanted help for two days a week. And at, I was really in two minds, like, should I go back to New Zealand because it's not quite worked out or should I stay? And he said, I'll just, you know, hang in there and there'll be some work in the summer. And lo and behold, I ended up working on the launch of enemy.com. So, you know, one of the first editorial websites in the world, I think I I would have to double check, but I think it predates rollingstone.com. Okay. Um, it, it certainly predates a lot of the newspaper websites. So, right. yeah, I'm coming up to fairly soon, 30 years uh, footprint in, in online journalism, which seems weird. But, um, right. yeah, so, yes, that was it was exciting because it was like the first flush of the internet. But, you know, as you mentioned earlier, it was when – London, the UK, was seemed to be the centre of what was happening in, in music um, right. for the whole world. It was, you know, I, there's vast amounts of television from the mid-90s I have no idea about because I wasn't at home. I was at gigs right. four, five, six nights a week um, okay. because there was just, there was so much on. There were so many bands. There was always something happening, like sometimes two gigs a day or, you know, you'll go and see somebody supporting and then you'll go and 
you jump on the tube a couple of stops and go and see somebody else and you know it was all free there were tickets provided from prs and usually a beer waiting for you at the, at the bar so right yeah, it, was, um, it was a lot of fun i really enjoyed it I <laughs> oh, <man. laughs> so what was the i mean did you have sort of a uh, even a rough goal at that point did you want to do record reviews or interviews or live show reviews or just covering a scene in general or all of it or oh, what yeah. was I mean, kind of the the idea at that point i mean i uh i was doing a lot of there's more production work for enemy.com because it it was run on the smell of an oily rag and also they were simultaneously quite scared of it which i think a lot of the music industry perhaps a few a few more of the prescient people in it understood that something seismic was happening they were right. they were sort of a bit scared of it but also quite dismissive there was one one figure on the enemy who dismissed the internet as the cb radio of the 1990s <laughs> uh i i do want to remind him of every time i see him and right. so a lot of it was production but at the same time which was oddly where I got most of my best access or, or best stories I got to write was I, I, I was writing for New Zealand newspapers based in London. So I'd be talking to Foo Fighters or Oasis or Blur or Pulp or Teenage Fan Club or all these bands who had a record out. Right. And they would do a day of international press in London and I'd, you know, go along and interview these people or sometimes, you know, go up and, you know, watch a sound check and talk to them before a show and somewhere like Nottingham or Leicester. Or... It was, yeah, it was, it was a really, really fun time. And, you know, especially if you're into sort of guitar music mm -hmm. um, and if, you know, younger listeners are sort of looking back at that time, like there was, you could just, walk down Camden High Street with a guitar over your shoulder and somebody would probably offer you a recording contract. There was <laughs> so much going on. There was so much music. Uh, so, sorry, there was so much money in the music industry. You know, if it wasn't like the first couple of weeks of a release of an album, you were looking at like 15, 16, 17 pounds for a CD, right. which is a lot of money. Like, I can't imagine many, many people even in London were earning more than about twenty to twenty-five thousand pounds a year at the time. So it was quite right. considerable amount of money. But everyone was in, seemed to be into music. Everyone seemed to be into guitar music or you know dance music or or what was happening. Like, I, I, my wife. Uh, was annoyed that I, I got to go and see Oasis at Nebworth when they did um, uh, three shows there in 96. And she, it was when we were dating a few years ago, and uh, she said, oh, I remember like being on that on that phone line and, and trying to get a ticket like and, and failing and being really upset. Something like <laughs> 2 million people in the UK had tried to get tickets to three shows. At, oh, uh, wow at the Milton Keynes Bowl and that was just the sort of insane numbers that were 
swirling around at the time. And it, obviously there was lots of interesting underground things that, you know, weren't all about pound signs. But, it, yeah, it, my overriding memory of just that time is like just how much music there was, how much live music, how many how many bands were in town, like, you, know, you would have to decide, oh, oh, it's either or, I either go and see this band or or that band. And, you know, just like, I, I've got a box somewhere up in the attic. I've kept every ticket stub. Oh, wow. And um, at some point, I'm just going to get a big giant cork board and stick them all up because um, I'm sure, like, there's gigs I I wouldn't even be able to tell you about now that when I see that ticket stub, a load of other, a load of memories will come from it. <laughs> right. So, yeah, it was a good time to be a music journalist. It was a good time to be a music journalist in London. It's a good time to be working at the NME. Um, but I didn't, I didn't really have much of a, a plan. I, yeah, it's not really been how I, I've sort of lived my journalistic career, um, for better or for worse. Right. I think the, the period in my life where it sort of maybe become a bit more structured and a bit more um, <laughs> planned is doing Cosmophoto because, you know, you have to, not just the blog, but just, you know, producing film and right. trying to get it, uh, you know, film out to people and work out, oh, okay, well, you know, I can get this to you now and this in six months or whatever, or try and work out what are the seasonal uh, choke points. Or, yeah, it's in my 20s, I just didn't think of anything like that. I was having fun and I didn't really think much more. <laughs> and as it turns out, right, these things are connected, mm. I think, right? You've mentioned so. Early on, you would write a story and you would use whatever images maybe public relations had given you or, mm. or or they came from anywhere. But at some point along the line, you became interested and, and figured out you could produce some of your own images, right? How, how did that all come about? Well, the, the photography bug, I mean, that it was a bit like music. That took a long, long time to come out. So I wasn't... An, really into photography until probably my late 20s and like what's odd is when i've worked on a, a weekly newspaper in new zealand i used to actually have to take pictures and so i had a early sort of uh not quite autofocus it was probably like an f nikon f801 or f401 or something i used to stick it on auto and i think it might it must have been autofocus just stuck it on auto and hope for the best really um right. and i you know it, the fact that i would get like printable pictures for the newspaper was probably more accident than design <laughs> um, and then it would have been in about 99 and at that stage i was working for a, a long dead music website called music 365 mm -hmm. i just started getting more interested in photography and and actually learnt like the basics. Like I'd been to Las Vegas in ninety eight and I won some money on uh 
a machine, a, um, a slot <laughs> machine. Um, and it was about a thousand dollars, which was oh wow, you know, not not a bad amount of money to win on a, a slot machine. No, so I I did the right thing and I took, you know, the I got the the cash back in notes. I took pretty much all of it up to my um, uh, hotel room and uh, just took a little bit to you know go back to the slots. I was on a road trip with um, some friends from Arizona. So uh, it w wasn't like I'd just flown to the States just to do a week in Las Vegas, don't worry. Um, <laughs> but I bought my first proper camera with, with that, which was a Canon EOS Rebel G, I think. Okay. So probably for those outside the US, like a EOS 500N maybe. Mm -hmm. And that had a you know, zoom lens, and I, I used that for a couple of years, I think, yeah, for like a year, year and a half. And then I was, I was getting more into photography, and I decided to upgrade my camera before I, I went back to New Zealand to visit my family, and I bought a Canon EOS 50E, um, which had a sensor that worked out in the viewfinder where your eye was. So oh, yeah. Well, I mean, that was science fiction stuff from the late 90s. <laughs> uh, so I, I bought that, and that was really around that time, like 2000, when I, I was reading more photography books. I started buying photography magazines. And then I'd always been interested in, like, the Cold War kids, like Soviet Union and, and that Eastern Europe and that part of the world. I think partly because it, it was not somewhere you could travel to, so it was kind of exotic and um, right. other and realized that you know alongside all the various soviet aircraft that i was obsessed with as a as a kid there was a whole camera industry so there was this whole other playground of things i could get nerdish about and so that was late 2000 i bought a, a lomo lca and a practica slr um, like a 1980s screw mount practica, which mm -hmm. I bought that because it's like, well, you know, even with the EOS 50E, which was was a great camera, and sort of like a like an enthusiast camera rather than a sort of amateur camera. I was just putting it on modes and it had an autofocus lens, and I started using it in manual. But I thought, oh, I'm just going to buy a manual SLR and just learn everything. Mm -hmm. So I got sort of books on photographic, you know, how to's and this practica and just learned how to take pictures. And yeah, at, around that time, I, I took, I took cameras along to interviews. So I, I went to the States to Nashville to do a piece for one of the Sunday papers and I took my camera along and I actually got some really nice pictures of Kurt Wagner from Lamb Chop sat on his front porch right that's it and that was like oh this is it's kind of nice to do both like <laughs> and certainly like the the paper i was writing for did not have the budget to send a photographer out for a couple of days <laughs> to uh to nashville right and i don't think the record company did either so yeah it was it was nice to sort of combine that sort of left brain right brain thing i think I think taking pictures as a writer helps your observational skills. So it helps your writing. 
Right. And so um, you took pictures in different scenarios, but specifically you maintained a series of taking images at sound checks, right? Yeah, so that that came um, a few years later and and through getting to know uh, Lambshot from Nashville. Um, okay. And I I like the fact that Nash uh, that Lambshot could be like up to 15 people on stage, which, you know, I think like 15 was the most I saw on a Lambshot show, or it could just be Kurt, the singer, playing an acoustic. Um, mm -hmm. And I thought well, that's kind of interesting. It's there's not many bands where, you know, it's essentially the same vehicle, whether there's one person at the wheel or fifteen, <laughs> right? Um, and they were super friendly. Um, I got to know Kurt and his his wife um, Mary, and uh, you know, went out to visit them a couple of times, and then said to him, "I'd like to like do a project where I document sound checks and like the." you guys traveling? And he said, well, yeah, pick a show somewhere on the next tour. So I chose uh, Zagreb in Croatia and went out and took soundcheck pictures and live pictures and just without really like much idea of what the end product would look like. But it's like, this just seems like quite an interesting thing to document. And over the years, I did quite a few shows with him where I'd Met up with them in Mos when they played Moscow. I think it's the only time they played Moscow, and shot them there, and then did the Trans Siberian after I saw them. So I spent like a month in Russia, okay. and uh, went with them to Istanbul when they did a couple of shows in a really great rock club there. And from from that, it was like, well, I kind of like this sort of different atmosphere at soundchecks so just started asking some of the other musicians i knew whether they'd be happy with me turning up to a soundcheck and shooting on on black and white film right so like Alexico and josh rouse and and buffalo tom and i over the years what had started as just maybe documenting one band you know i, I think i ended up shooting like 25 or, or 30 or so so far Right. Um, and then that, sorry. I, oh, I was just going to say you've actually posted a picture uh, from the uh, side of the stage with mm -hmm. Buffalo Tom recently. Was that a recent show or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was so. So yeah, from that Lamb Chop project, a, another band that I got to know just from interviewing them and and having friends in common. That uh, they were big fans of like the fine nun music scene in New Zealand um, was Buffalo Tom, who are who are from Boston, a really great like three piece sort of noisy rock band. Dinosaur Junior Junior, as they uh, they were called in their early days uh, by the British music press. Right. Um, and I I shot one of their shows when I'd come to Boston, and just you know had my cameras with. A couple of cameras with me as I always do. Shot this one show, and then they sort of took a bit of a hiatus, and then came back in 2007. And uh, I shot a sound check when they they did a London show, which I got some really nice pictures, and also um, did some sort of side of stage 
stuff with them during the show and at one point was actually on stage hidden behind the monitor getting shots of bill janovitz the singer like in in proper sort of full bent which was what quite exciting it was not a place where many people see a show from right absolutely um, and, and from that i said oh i you know why don't i come out on tour um when you do do europe and really like that sort of like reportage black and white photography pushed film no flash at first i was sort of playing around with, with different cameras and and lenses but fairly quickly i, I read something where it says if you're doing a long-standing project two cameras two lenses keep it down to you know not it has to be this lens and this lens but it's like choose two lenses and one film stock and you know just use those so pretty much since then apart from um wanted to do something a little different amongst it i stick with a couple of nikon cameras at first it was fuji neopan but after that went away cut it triax and right. usually pushed up to 3200 or 6400 for the sound checks and maybe 1600 800 to 1600 for the actual concerts right and just really enjoyed that yeah like i said earlier that different atmosphere um that you get at a sound check compared to a concert like the the sort of especially on black and white film though that really sort of atmospheric emptiness of empty concert halls or clubs right sort of, you know pools of light and then lots of shadow or indistinctness and you know a, a friend of mine when i did a a little talk about it at a an event um, some years back he said, "Well, the body language is different. It, it's not, it's not performance." And I said, "Yeah, that's a really, really good thing to observe. Those people aren't in their stage gear. They're not, not performing to an audience. So right. it's very different. You know, well, people and trying to work out what that buzz in, uh, is in their, their microphone, and maybe they're wearing their, you know, the comfortable gear that they wear on the tour bus, or you know, their." there's all sorts of quite yeah no like nor normality amidst you know the pageantry of performance or you know doing a show and i i found that really interesting and it's not you know it, it's not like those sort of epic trips where you know somebody would travel with the rolling stones for three weeks or three months you know poxaka blues or or that kind of stuff but it's a little bit of a window i agree know. and you get and if, like you said if you're up there on stage with them you can get an angle that the average fan at the concert isn't going to get to see and yeah. and during the actual show itself the photographers down in the pit they're you know that's not the best angle anyway but it is at least an angle that the fan would see but they're not going to see what it would look like to be standing next to the person and and uh there's um so buffalo tom for instance their um their guitar tech buffalo is uh, a wonderful photographer 
um, and he sh he shoots stuff side of stage on digital. Okay. Um, during the gigs, and he's got this really good like digital archive of Buffalo Tom, right? From the last decade or so, and yeah, it's like he he's in a perfect position to take the kind of stuff that like even I'm not gonna be in that position because it's like it, you know it's his workstation where he's <laughs> tuning the guitars and making right. sure somebody's amplifier is not going to explode um, <laughs> sorry but it's yeah it, it, it and it is that yeah that that idea of sort of peering behind the curtain a little bit with any kind of rock music tour i mean it, i suppose that that's been that's changed a little bit um because with the advent of like social media and and you know digital culture there's a lot more we see a lot more than we used to um right because there's content to you know create and <laughs> people interested but you know if i think back to like the first tour i did with buffalo tom for instance in 2007 there were no smartphones like right that nobody was holding up a smartphone and videoing their their show it was just before you know most people got uh, an iPhone or a, a rival to the iPhone. So people were actually still watching gigs. I mean, they might've been talking to their mates, but they weren't just holding their phone up. Right. And that, you know, that's only 15 years ago, but <laughs> that already feels like you're relating some kind of story involving an eight track and trying to plug it. <laughs> that's right. So just sort of, bridging the gap a little bit back to photography you you know you had this background in writing specifically for the web and you mentioned you had started to have this kind of interest in the soviet cameras is that where the blog started the combining those two interests or yeah um so i, I got into got into photography like like deeply uh, in about 2000 and then you know that interest in Soviet cameras, but just like cameras in general and, and, and film and, and sort of was lucky that I, I got into film while it was still really the only game in town, but, um, you know, also that period where everything sort of fell off the cliff and, you know, you have people like Agfa who were suddenly like defunct, you know, giant, giant <laughs> film producers who, whose signs used to be outside chemists, you know, and then a year later they were gone. Right. Um, so like in about 2012, when, when things were pretty bleak, not, yeah, maybe, <laughs> maybe bleak might be a bit too heavy handed, but certainly like pessimistic. Um, right. And I, for a long time, sort of after I, I left music journalism for a bit and was sort of working on various bits of the BBC. I, I worked a lot of nights and then I came back to music journalism for a bit and helped run AOL Music in the UK. So I launched Spinner, which was their rock music blog. It was the UK edit, launch editor for that. And then ran um, Music News for AOL from the UK. I went from, you know, either working shifts for a period of about 
six or seven years or then go back to music journalism and you know having lots of things to do in the evening go and see shows or you know interview people or whatever uh, to suddenly having like a you know a more structured nine to five job and i was a bit bored so i was like well i've had this interest in film photography and i did you know i still wouldn't describe myself as an expert in in any way shape or form but because i've been doing stuff for 10 years i had a reasonable amount of knowledge and i can write uh, and i can take a picture right and then suddenly i was like oh, i should set up a blog okay and i yeah set that up in about 2012 and it was again like just not really just setting it up as something to do you know i was at the time i was single i had gone from quite an unstructured life to suddenly having a bit more of a structure around my working day and having my weekends off um it was like okay well you know i'll do do something do something creative with this and do a blog and and even from setting it up like i think in the first year i only did about six or seven blog posts and then end of 2012 was when i started getting a bit more serious about it so actually i can can write all those articles that I, I'd always wanted to read because I've got my own uh, my own outlet. So you know, reviewing cameras or you know, showing what this film can do in this condition, or even not through any sense of ego, but it's like, oh, okay, well, I visited these places, or you know, maybe I can do a post about you know, shooting film in Croatia, or you know. And then, then all the music stuff, obviously. So, right. But, you know, a pattern is emerging here without any real, <laughs> real sort of plan, yeah. um, which I think is is actually not a bad way to approach these things. Is just, just try stuff and see see what works and what doesn't. And and you know, at, at the time, the blog was called Zorky Photo because I used a lot of Soviet cameras and. Right, Zorki in Russian essentially means the same thing as Hawkeye, like one who has sharp sights. Mm -hmm. um, and so it was like it kind of. I thought Zorki photo sort of set my stall. It's like, oh yeah, you might see something about Russian cameras, and it wasn't too serious, but it was hopefully useful and informative. And then that gradually morphed into like writing more, you know stuff about Soviet cameras, stuff about music photography, photographic history, you know, doing these interviews with interesting people who'd shot film back in the past or, you know, news stories and trying to sort of bring a few more of my journalistic skills rather than just going, oh, I, I went somewhere and I took some pictures, have a look at them. Um, right. That sort of magazine format. And again, you know, that was not, I'm not going to pretend that I sat there in a cafe and 12 years ago and was like, I want it to be X, Y, or Z. This was all <laughs> like pretty much unplanned. Right. And it, you know, Cosmophoto as it is now is certainly not one of the biggest blogs. It's, you know, it's something I have to devote time to around a, a full-time job and, you know, all the other stuff that happens in life. So it's, so, you know, 
it's nowhere near as big as something like 35 mmc or japan camera hunter but you know it's got a readership and you know lots of people who seem to like what it is i do and you know the film has come off the back of that you know the right. hunt did his um <laughs> and i remember looking at that and just like obviously doing a story on it and going that's such a great idea not like that's such a great idea you bastard i hate you for doing it <laughs> <laughs> well that was going to be my question because i'm sure maintaining just the blog itself you know did keep you busy right that like you said that's that's more on your plate you got to do but then you decide to pile a little bit more on there and release a film so kind of what kind of what can you share with us about that experience of when a person decides hey you know maybe i want to release a a film (laughs) what what kind of learning curve is there involved in a process like that lots and um you know I mentioned Bellamy Hunt. He was uh, incredibly helpful because I, I I knew Bellamy a little bit. I'd done a few posts for Japan Camera Hunter and he'd republished a few things that uh, I'd done on Cosmophoto. So that had helped me get a bit more of an audience. And we, we used to speak quite regularly. And I just said to him, look, you know, that's such a great idea. And it's like, it wasn't that I was kicking myself that I didn't have the idea first, but it was like, I, I, I kind of want to do this myself because this seems like just such a natural thing for, you know, a blog, uh, the kind of thing we're doing. And he was uh, immediately helpful. He was like, well, I can tell you all the stuff not to do. So I've made all the stuff. <laughs> um, so he was like really, yeah, really encouraging and um, didn't see me as any kind of threat. And I then began the process of like, well, who can I do a film with and obviously this was going to be rebranding an existing product because unless you have you know back then probably a hundred thousand pounds today probably two hundred thousand pounds you're not going to be able to make a black and white um bespoke emulsion right um it's just it's expensive and you know you have to do all the all the testing the abc chemical testing that you know these companies do when they come up with an idea for a film. So I identified Foma Bohemia as a place that would allow me to take one of their films. I used their um, 100 speed film, Pam 100, quite a bit, liked it. So I thought, well, you know, nice 100 speed black and white film can be used indoors with studio lights, can be, can be used outdoors, nice contrast, scans well. Um, again, you know, a, a film that I'd used, uh, I'm not saying I'd, I'd shot hundreds of rolls of it and, you know, used every possible developer with it, but, you know, I liked it. I'd got some shots I liked in different conditions and thought, yeah, actually, I, I think this is a film worth, worth shooting more with. And also a, a lot, of, lot of people had not shot Fomapan films, especially in the States. Right. Distribution of... FOMA films was quite patchy even like a decade ago. Hard to get in places like South America and India and uh, it, in Australia and New Zealand. I don't think it was a particularly um, common product either. So it's just like, well, okay, okay, wait, you know, maybe people can look at 
this as as something to try. And and yeah, I was honest at the at the point. It's like this is an existing emulsion. I didn't say what what film it was, but neither did Lomography. Um, right. You know when they were repackaging existing films as you know Lady Grey or Earl Grey, and th that's not a problem. Be at least be. Don't hoodwink people. Don't say this is a new emulsion when it's not. Can't get a board on on that kind of stuff. But you know this idea that you know there's this awful dishonesty and not telling people exactly what the emulsion is. Like if it's a black and white emulsion, just put a development chart on your site or right. in the box so that people can develop it if they want to. And you know that will solve 90% of the grumbles. I mean, there's always <laughs> always going to be people who will bitch and moan about it because there are always people who will bitch and moan about anything, really. You know, Bellamy, I think, was the, the first from that industry, the sort of from the writing side, the, the blog side, to do, do the film rebranding. And then I would say I was the second. And then after that, there's seems to have been a little bit of an explosion in the last three or four years. <laughs> right. And so if it wasn't hard enough to do the first time around being your first time doing it, you decide to do a second one at the same time, we're going through a global pandemic and supply yeah. chain issues. And <laughs> oh yeah. But yeah. It was, um, yeah, it was a challenging time to do it. So yeah. So that's agent shadow, which is a 400 speed film, which is made by Harmon in the UK. Again, mm -hmm. existing uh, emulsion. I'm not give them a check for 200 grand. Um, <laughs> and so uh, at this point, I should mention, you know, a lot of people liked the packaging for Mono, the 100 speed film, which was done by a friend of mine, Martin Duncan, somebody I used to work with at the BBC, right. and, uh, who would just make me laugh and laugh and laugh and we had lunch together as a graphic designer uh and when i had the film idea and i knew i wanted it to have a sort of soviet graphic art look to it the, the packaging right. um he he said oh i know what you mean i said oh could you do it and he's like yeah yeah give me a template and i'll i'll do it so he did this amazing job with cosmophoto packaging the mono packaging and then all this other stuff around it. So we did some space postcards sort of based very much on sort of East European graphic art, like cold warrior. Right. Um, and did them as t-shirts and, and people really like those. I've even seen a couple of t-shirts around London from people I don't know, which is <laughs> awesome. It, it must be what, uh, what it's like if you're a novelist and you see somebody reading your novel on the tube. Very cool. Um, and I had this idea and it literally came out of nowhere. Uh, I was sat at work and I just got in my head this sort of secret agent-y scene, like a film noir scene with a guy meeting a woman under a lamplight. And, and it just arrived like that. I was like, where the fuck did that come from? <laughs> right. It got me thinking of a kind of secret agent film. And like we can tell the story in a comic called The 36 Frames. Right. And it, you know, I, I can remember being 
desperate to get home and send Martin an email with everything. I just I had a brain dump when I was writing all these <laughs> notes on my phone and I sent him this email. I was like, can we, like at that stage we weren't working together. He'd, he'd moved to a different company, but um, we, we met up soon afterwards and we said, oh, this is really good. Like, where did this come from? And I was like, I don't know. But, um, and so, yeah, that was, uh, that took a while to, I, I think Harmon were, very busy with you know Ilford film have got very popular uh, and this you know the, the, this point the 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 idea for it was way before the pandemic um right about it was probably about 2018 so it took took about three years for it to come to fruition okay. um so I had that idea of like the film would come in this briefcase mm -hmm. a box that looked like a spy's briefcase and and come with this comic and then Paul Martin had to take this idea and actually turn it into a comic, which is not 36 frames. It's it's bigger than that. But uh, yeah, and and I did a Kickstarter to to fund it because there was no way I could I could actually do it just off off my own bat really. Um, and then you know just had issues with you know Harmon's saying yes with the best of intentions but then just not being able to get the film done um when they thought they could and then you know various other issues uh and just yeah the the extra pressure of it, it being during the pandemic and where you know everyone was sending stuff in the post so <laughs> right like um postal services were um a little bit uh under strain so it was I, I was kind of glad to see the end of it when I posted the last stuff that I saw. <laughs> um, but not in the sense of I, I didn't like the film anymore. But I just, it, yeah, it was, it was a lot. I mean, you know, Martin found it a lot to do that comic. And he was like, you know, we're, we're going to have to have a serious chat if you want me to do another comic again. <laughs> <laughs> you know, one's enough. One's enough. Right. Um, well, yeah, that... it was. It was uh, a hugely fun thing to do, and I'd still look at that comic and just think, well, you know, that that is that is the right spirit to have with rebranding is do something different. Like, right. people love that packaging. I, you know, the first time I saw that finished box, I was like, this is better than I ever hoped, <laughs> and the comic was better than I ever hoped, and it it, it is doing something different. It is doing something that really like makes the most of that opportunity for design like film boxes are a really fun thing to to have fun with like and and i think right. you know you know that over the course of film photography there have been some stunning like box designs that were you know really eye-catching look at what foma did with their the retro awesome packaging for the 120 that they bought back and it's like oh my god this stuff looks amazing like right but on them um and you know you you sort of sometimes when you're in old camera shops or or junk shops or whatever you come across old old box designs and it's like it's just a wonderful it's but like you know old sweet sweet packaging or <laughs> any kind of sort of reasonably disposable packaging you know consumer goods there's a a lot of thought that goes into it um and i think you know, I'm not, I'm not 
putting this um, all down to a Cosmo photo, but I think there's there's been some film launches since where like people have really looked at that film packaging and gone, okay, we, we need to we can't just put a like a black and white box or something. <laughs> well, it, um, one of the people who've done the Aero film, Kodak Aero film, Luminaire, their box design's beautiful. Right. The film never die in the cardboard container. Like there's some really interesting designs. So, you know, the whole going back to that sort of grumble over rebranding, it's like, you know, I can understand if, you know, people not wanting to spend more money than they need to, you know, film prices are going up, development prices are going up, but, um, and this rebranding stuff is helping the producers because they are making money right. in this film for people like me. And it is being, you know, if that's on top of the profits they are making from their, their normal production. Right. It, it's not a case of, you know, certainly I know from the companies I've been working with, they are not saying, oh, well, you know, we'll do this and it'll knock 10% off the production capacity of our own products. It's, it's on top of what they sell on their own products. So it's right. good, good for the film producers. Well, and I'm glad you mentioned all of that. Uh, I, I, going back to Martin and the design, and it, and it is it, it does jump out at you, right? I mean, that's one of the things that everyone comments about with both Mono and with Agent Shadow. But these things, music and photography, you know, are creative outlets for people. A lot of times, I mean, music can be a solo pursuit. A lot of times it is a collaboration if you're in a band and you're bouncing musical ideas off one another. Photography oftentimes is a solo pursuit. <laughs> you yeah. know, you're, you're out taking pictures uh, by yourself, perhaps. But you did get to collaborate with Martin on the design and packaging of, of these two films. And it sounds like you've had a great relationship. But what was, can you speak a little bit to that to, you know, you, you birthed these ideas, but you very much worked with him to bring it to life. And so what was that collaboration process like I, from a creative standpoint? Really, really great. You know, I, I, I'm not a graphic artist in any way, shape, or form. My mum was an art history teacher and a and an artist, and so I always grew up with books on art and you know art in the house. So an interest there, but yeah, I'm not a good draftsman. Um, you know, my visual outlet is photography. Um, so um, yeah, I can't I can't draw like I can take a take a photo. And, you know, Martin is, you know, he's a little bit older than me, He, but not by much. He's massively into music. He's interested in all sorts of various stuff. And, and I would say oh, I kind of, I didn't want to be one of those people who gave him a, like a, an idea and sort of stood over the shoulder going, well, that doesn't work. Well, that's not what I want. It's like, you don't want to be that client or that, you know collaborator but it was like here here's a mood board here's the stuff that i'm like wanting it to kind of look like and even maybe 
not a constraint, but it's like, here's the color palette that I'm imagining. Right. But also just having the understanding that like, you know, none of that is, is handcuffs. If he goes, well, actually look at this. I think this works then to understand that he's the graphic designer. He has a bit of, a bit of experience of this and just, yeah, like, not everything works, but um, you know, you look at some sketches and go, yeah, maybe, right? But also, maybe not. <laughs> um, um, but uh, us, you know, being good enough friends that it wasn't an issue. I, right. You know, I, I, I would say I think neither of us realised how much work the comic would be, and also just you know, I had I'd nutted out a a plot, a loose plot, also thinking, well, this is, you know, also, you you know, you're co-creator, so if you think it doesn't work, just work around it. And he totally rewrote the middle of it because he was like, I think this works better. And it absolutely does. So, you right. know, a lot of that plot is from him going, oh, I think we need to do this, this, this. And we had a, my initial idea was the start and the finish. Right. He, he even changed the, the finish a little bit, but improved it. Um, and then the center, center bit was kind of this idea that we had and the, the bit in the club. But, you know, it's just, it, it, it's a good, it's a good exercise to, you know, not be hell bent on like, no, it must be like, it must be like this. It's like you, if you go into collaborations like this with like, too rigid an idea then sometimes you you lose opportunities to do really good stuff that's right um, and i'm you know i'm massively proud of it and i think you know the film the the, the film inside is a really good film and you know especially great for shooting in in low light conditions but it, it's just it's the whole package it's the it's taking this film that nobody really thought you could shoot in low light and just going, okay, well, you know, bring your inner secret agent out and you know, take it out at midnight. Um, you know, when you're on holiday in Prague and shoot the streets and, and do all of that fun stuff. And, you know, just, just in the way that homography made people rethink certain emotions in the nineties and the two thousands. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a fun exercise. And I, you know, I'd, I'd like to do, more more of these projects with martin and just you know do more films do you know bring right. out a range of different films under the the cosmophoto name and you know approach each one as a completely different entity and in the in the back of my mind there is a kind of marvel universe type universe that seems to be <laughs> Taking shape, right? Um, yeah, a sort of slightly warped Cold War thing. <laughs> um, but you know, who, who it'll, it, often it's like a name will come up. It's like or an, or an image, and then it's like, okay, what's the name that goes with that image? What can I? And then what can I do that is different that nobody's done with a film? Um, right. And, you know, I've, I've got all these ideas sort of percolating and it, it's, 
yeah, it's a fun little thing to have sort of boiling away on a hot plate at the back of your <laughs> your head. Um, right. What are you doing? Well, I'll be excited to see what does come next um, from on the emulsion side of things. But one thing that you did, I guess you've done it for a while, actually, but at the beginning of this year, you sort of put a little bit more emphasis on on selling some affordable cameras on the site also. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've found myself sort of looking, looking at certain cameras you know, writing about cameras and, and, you know, some of that sort of analog culture sort of, oh, so-and-so celebrity shooting a contacts T2 again. Oh, the prices are going up. <laughs> all, right. all that kind of stuff. And then, then realizing that, you know, there are sort of various cult compacts that are quite affordable, but there's this, you know, vast amount of, you know, I'll start again. There's certain like classic cameras that all the blogs and the you know magazines and Instagram channels, YouTube channels all all cover, and it's you know we can name fifty between us without right. without blinking. I, I'm sure, but you know there's a vast amount of cameras that you know don't get that sort of love from from the influencers or the commentators, and um, that you know, take great photos or help you take great photos um, and are you know, somewhat more affordable. And, you know, part of that came from me using things like Zenities and Practicas when I was a quite poor music journalist. <laughs> right. I didn't have a lot of disposable income and, you know, liking the pictures I got from it. And that, you know, yes, I do these days. I have Nikons and I even have a few Leicas and, and I do like shooting with those cameras, but I also like, I like having fun with film photography. You know, film photography should be fun. It's, it's you know, apart from a, a very, you know, select cadre, it's not really a professional tool in the same way it was, you know, when we, we were in our twenties, maybe. Right. Um, so film photography is fun. Like, <laughs> and if, if you want to have fun with film photography, you don't necessarily need to walk around with a camera that costs you two thousand pounds to have fun. You could right. have fun with a ten pound camera or a twenty five pound camera. Um obviously, you know, conversions for, for American or Canadian listeners. So yeah, it was just identifying that, you know, I, I can I've shot with a, a decent amount of cameras now. I have a quite a sizable collection, but also just just buying trays of compact cameras from auctions mm -hmm. and just, you know, putting a roll of film through them and um, testing them. And, you know, I, I, I'm lucky enough that I know a, a really good repairer who'll fix things for me for, you know, good rates. And that I can, you know, offer people a film tested compact camera for, you know, under 40 quid. Um, right. Sometimes as little as 25 quid. And, you know, part of the fun for me is I get to stick a roll of film through cameras that I, maybe I otherwise wouldn't have put a roll of film through and gone, well, that's interesting. That's <laughs> a camera I'd use again. Right. Or like, like to take on a, you know, a trip away or something. So, yeah, I think I started about 18 months ago 
and um, then had the idea of like creating an online shop and giving it a name. So um, again, keeping with that sort of vaguely East European theme from from Cosmophoto. Um, it's called Camera Bureau, B-U-R-O, like Politburo. And and yeah, I probably got about two hundred cameras, which are sitting in a in a wardrobe waiting to be tested and and put on the shot. And I'm I'm gonna do maybe out by the time this podcast reaches people's ears, but I'm actually going to start selling a, a bunch of compact cameras that come with batteries and a roll of color film, okay. um, Kodak color film for 39 pounds. So I sort of see that as like a analog photography starter kit. That's right. It's, and these you know, days that's almost like just buying the film and getting yeah. a free camera with it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's, when I when I film test a camera, I give people a three month warranty, um, mm -hmm. even with the like the twenty five pound cameras. If I put a roll of film through it and I'm happy with it to go on the site, then I offer a three month warranty. Um, some of the, the cheaper stuff, the sort of novelty cameras that I don't put a uh, a film through, then that's usually a thirty day warranty. But yeah, with these sort of analog starter kits. Rather than put a film through them, I test them, uh, test to see they're working, test the normal functions like the flash. Is the shutter working? Is the aperture working? The light seals look okay. Um, all of that stuff. Uh, rewind. Right. And um, here's your roll of film. Here's your camera. And, you know, it's a 60 day warranty. So if there's any issues, send it back. Right. Um, but just, you know, I know a lot of shops that, you know, are, are quite competitive with their pricing and some that, you know, maybe charge a little bit more, but you know that they have spent quite a bit of time making sure that camera's okay. Right. Um, but there are some places where they just seem to be price gouging. You know, they are charging 250 quid for a, a camera that, you know, maybe should be 99 quid. Right. And I just don't think that's fair. So... I see it as a, you know, a little camera selling wing of Cosmophoto and not something I intend to make a great deal deal of money out of. But um, it just makes sense to, you know, have a few cameras for sale. And you know, part of it is the fun of just testing them and going out <laughs> with, with, you know, especially because I, I, you know, for years I didn't really indulge in that side of compact cameras and. There's a shit ton of cameras that were made in the 80s and 90s and 2000s. And it's like, wow, it's a real sort of golden period of consumer photography technology. So it's a whole new circuit to play in. That's right. And I, and I do think it's a great service to kind of put together a bundle that could get people started. Mm. And so that sort of brings me to the last thing I wanted to ask you about, just given you know, the, because you are connected to a lot of people in film photography, and I know you were at Photographica not long ago and the other event in France, it's sort yeah. of, and we're, it feels like, you know, the, the world is kind of getting a little bit more back to normal. I know 2023 has been very busy for me. It feels like we're making up for lost time. Mm. But I was just wondering, given your perspective, uh, 
kind of kind of what is the state of the union of film photography in uh, July 2023? What's your take? I, were these events very more crowded than you expected or what are you seeing? Yeah. So, so Photographica, you know, for anyone who's listening, who's not heard of it before is a, a long-standing camera fair in London held in a big horticultural hall. I've been going to it for more than 20 years and, and been selling film and Leslie cameras for the last five or six years. So that was in May, and that, in terms of stallholders, that felt probably the quietest. But in terms of people coming to it, it was the busiest. I made more money at that this year's one than I did at any others. So right. um, people were going there and, and buying things. They were buying film. Bievre, um, which is in usually a, a couple of weeks later, is just south of Paris. It's part of an international photo fair in this village, which is kind of parallel to Versailles, probably about 10 miles away from Versailles. I'd always wanted to go to it, but didn't manage to get there until 2021. And that was thanks to Lomig from Filmwashi, who's, who's been selling film there for years. I took 200 rolls of film, um, it's a two-day event. I sold them all. The next year, I went back with 350 or something, and I sold 250. This year, I went with 480, and I sold 450. So, um, yeah, that event has about 300 stalls of people selling cameras. Look, I say selling cameras, selling anything to do with photography, secondhand, you know, whether that's, you know, magic lanterns or Soviet rangefinders or, you know, novelty compact cameras. Whatever you're interested in, Bievra, you'll find it at Bievra probably. And at, yeah, it was a, a busy, busy time. I think I think the pandemic in an odd way was quite good for film photography because people suddenly had a lot of um, spare time on their hands and a lot of them indulged in hobbies that either they hadn't had the time for or they wanted to had always wanted to try and you know never had the time so you had a, a sudden you know up, off the back of a definite upswing in interest in film photography which i think started around 2015 um and certainly by 2017 was hard to ignore um, right there were a lot more people talking about film shooting film prices of cameras had gone up film stock was sometimes hard to get because it was selling out. Then you had the pandemic, you had people with time on their hands. Film photography was kind of meditative. If you shot slowly, a uh, good thing to take your mind off what was going on in the world if you're able to get out and take pictures. And there, but allied to that was the issues around production, right. uh, be it sourcing, raw materials or or just making stuff in in factories where you know you, you could maybe only have a third of the normal staff because of covid working practices so i think the general sort of cost of things in the last few years both from covid and maybe the war in ukraine right has finally burst um the sort of post-digital crash 
affordability of film. I'm not saying film is more expensive than it's ever been. It's, um, you know, a lot of people have pointed out, you know, it's about the same in terms of what film costs compared to the average salary as it was in the 1980s. Right. It's just, you know, in the 90s, there were suddenly big parts of the world that had never, never shot casual photography, holiday photography, Eastern Europe, China, you know, other bits of Asia suddenly had middle classes who went on holidays and they wanted a camera. Right. Um, and so, you know, the big film companies were not just selling hundreds of millions of rolls of film a year, they were selling billions. Right. Um, and with that comes a, a economy of scale, then, then digital hit. And I think the likes of Kodak and Fuji were just grateful to make what money they could off, you know, keeping that machinery going. And we've reached the end of that, really. You know, there's the rising cost of raw materials. And just also, you know, we, film can't be as cheap as it, they, it used to be because they're not making millions of rolls at a time. They're making tens of thousands. And, um, right. you know, it's a, it's, it's a more specialist project, product. But, you know, if you look back at, you know, how much film Kodak was making 2014, and how much they're making now, I think they've quadrupled the amount of film they make each year to meet that demand. Right, right. Um, I do hope we, I, I do hope we've have either found some sort of balance or 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 getting there. Mm. I mean, I you know, Ilford had issues in their past, but it yeah. it feels like they have found a a sweet spot that they can operate at a scale where, you know, they they're in business to make money and they can make money and they can deliver product. You know, you're, you're not often seeing their film and chemistry chemistry out of, out of stock. Uh, yeah. Fuji has, you know, done what they've done with film. Yeah. Kodak. I mean, and, and, you know, I, I have purposely not tried to, crystal ball gaze too much on Cosmophoto about Fuji. I mean, I, I report stuff as news stories when I know it to be true, something that's come out of, you know, trusted news stories in Japan. But right. I mean, I, I, I can read something convincing from one person about how they're still making film and go, oh, okay, maybe they are still making film and then read something from an equally authoritative person who says, no, they gave it up 10 years ago and go, <laughs> Well, yeah, no, that makes sense as well. So who knows? I'm not going to pretend I, I know the answer. Kodak, I mean, Kodak have had like their own set of issues. Right. Part of which comes down to the sort of Byzantine, you know, business, uh, <laughs> set of businesses that they are now because of, you know, having to deal with historic debt, you know, pension debt. So, right. If you were to ask me what what is the thing that will help most of all, I think is probably twofold. It's stable supply. It's knowing that you can walk into the stores you would normally walk into or, you know, order from online and know that they have stock. Um, and two is a reasonably affordable color negative film. If right. if if you could so obviously, I'm I'm thinking in UK prices, 
I'm not expecting the days of you know spending three quid for a roll of color plus, which you know it was not that long ago. Like right, eighteen, you could still get a roll of color plus for three fifty four quid. Um, I'm not expecting those days, but you know if I could walk in and get a roll of color film for seven quid, eight quid, great, and you know because I'm thinking well that's not too bad for a 17 year old or a 18 year old who's just getting into film it's you know a little bit more than a what a pint of beer costs in london right which seems to be probably quite a sensible yardstick I think um, so. but you know there are some places that are charging 20 pounds for all the color plus at the moment right. and it's like <laughs> no way in hell i'm going to spend that kind of money on on any film really i mean Ectochrome, maybe, because you know, I've shot the new Ectochrome and it's great. Um, right. and I'm grateful that Kodak took the plunge and I'm aware of how expensive it was to <laughs> relaunch Ectochrome. It costs millions of dollars to right. get it back into production. So it you know, that's not gonna be a film that is gonna cost a tenner. It's it's gonna be over twenty quid. But I I would rather it be around, so I will, you know, buy a few rolls of it every few months and and shoot with it. Um, right. But you know, we need stable supply of color film, and we need a a small range of reasonably affordable color film. I mean, you know, people don't need to be shooting Portrait Four Hundred in a twenty pound camera. Um, <laughs> Well, there should be something, you know, a decent color film that is that you don't have to sweat over when you loaded it in your camera and you're thinking, oh god, <laughs> this cost as much as a week's lunches or whatever. Right. No, that makes perfect sense. And I think, you know, that's probably a good point to wrap up on, Stephen. I really do appreciate your time. How can how can people get in touch and follow along with what all you've got going on? Well, I'm on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram as Cosmo Photo, Cosmo with a K, Photo with an F, um, and obviously the blog Cosmophoto.com, where there's you know various articles. What I like doing is also publishing stuff from people if they want to review a camera or you know talk about a time they shot film in a you know traveling or whatever. Right. Um, just drop me a, drop me an email. There's um, various ways you can get in contact, uh, either social media or, or email. And I, uh, for every published post on Cosmophoto, I actually send a couple of rolls of film. Okay. Um, people get get a little something, right? Yeah, for their um, for their words. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's uh, that is brilliant for sure, and I would encourage everyone to to do that. But thanks again, Stephen. I really appreciate your time and and sharing your experiences with these things. Thanks very much. It was uh, really good fun to be on. Special thanks again to Stephen Dowling for coming on to talk about his journeys through music and photography. Please do go to Cosmophoto.com and check out his new camera bureau section. 
pick up some film, and consider submitting a blog post. Our theme song, Timeless, is from Mike Gutterman. Mike provides music for content creators on his Bandcamp page at mikegutterman.bandcamp.com. You can get in touch with Sunny16 at sunny16presents at gmail.com. And as John Whitmore might say, always try and be a decent human being.